0: Good morning, Abundant Life. How are you? Huh? It's good to see you guys. Did I tell you last week that you're my favorite service? Did I tell you guys that? Yes, you well, you are. You're my favorite service. For right now, anyway, until the next one gets in here. Because then they have the third one in the morning, That's the last one in the morning. So you guys are right there in the middle somewhere. It's good to see you all. I'm glad you're here. Before I get into the message, I want to re- just remind you that we have a brand new series starting next week called Grave Robber. In this series, we're gonna be looking at seven of the miracles of Jesus through the Gospel of John. And this is gonna be a really powerful series. And so I encourage you to be here. I encourage you to invite your friends to come and be with you. And I also encourage you to get into a life group. We have a life uh, a link, uh, what do you call the thing? Life link set up outside under the portico where you drive up and let people off. And you'll find people out there that are leading life groups. And so they're there to help assist you to get into a life group. And so if you're not in a group yet, I just encourage you to, uh, uh, to jump into a group and hook up with those people, link up with them, and uh, get into a group this fall. We are continuing a series that we started maybe four weeks ago now today that we're called WIF. And in this series, I began the whole series by asking you a question. How do you relate to God? How do you relate to God? And I hope that this series has challenged your thinking a little bit because God's desire is for us to be with him. But sometimes we get that confused and we get it messed up and and we start relating to God in ways that are... Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say inappropriate, maybe too strong of a word, but they're less than what God desires and, and they're not what God designed for us. For example, sometimes we find ourselves in a posture of, of uh, being over God. And what's central to the universe when we relate to him over God are the universal laws, the, the immutable principles that have been put in place. And, and God kind of gets marginalized and in some, in some cases just gets pushed all the way out of the picture. So there's life over God and then there's life under God and the whole life under God posture is where at the center of the universe is this uh, capricious God that you're trying to appease for the hopes that he will bless you and, and keep calamity from coming upon you. And so there's life under God. And, and then we looked at how sometimes we live life from God and from God is, is this, this whole idea that... Um, assumes that that um, that God himself orbits around us and he's kind of like a genie or divine butler and everything every person everything even God himself orbits around us and then the last one which was probably the the most subtle of all of them is life for God and what's centered at the universe is the mission of God because we're asking ourselves, of, of course, what could be more important than the mission of God, that I'd be on mission for God? What could be more important than that? Well, the answer is God himself could be more important than that. And so these postures are typically easy for us to grasp because they're so familiar to us. But we have a more difficult time visualizing a life from God because we haven't seen as much of that. We we haven't experienced it. It seems to be more rare. If you remember when I started out this series, I told you about the the uh, Gala Placidia in Italy that houses some of the most well-preserved mosaics that are in the world today. And if you were to go there, you would actually be disappointed because when you go in there, it's relatively small, it's crowded. There's only small windows through which you can look. It's kind of dark and, and they're obscured by the, by, the, by the darkness and even by the sweaty and over-perfumed uh, uh, tourists that come through there. And, uh, and so you leave disappointed. You know, you come up with this great sense of excitement and you leave, uh, that was a letdown. down. And sometimes people come into the Christian faith that way. They come with a great sense of excitement that everything's going to change and everything's going to be great and life with God is going to be amazing and you kind of leave, at least some people leave, disappointed. And I think this kind of captures the experience of of sometimes the church and sometimes Christianity. And so some leave disappointed. and, and, And even some people who they identify themselves with Jesus and as Christians, but they actually settle for a relationship that's less than what he designed for us. One of those ways that we've talked about. And some end up just kind of walking away all together. And so trying to speak with these people about the wonders and the beauty of life with God is kind of difficult because they don't have a reference point. They've got nothing to, to, to look at to kind of imagine what that is like. 17th century monk, Brother Lawrence, made a great statement about this rich communion that we have with God. He said, quote, those only can comprehend it who practice and experience. Those only can comprehend it who practice and experience. But like the mosaic ceiling in in Ravenna, life with God is so far beyond our imagination that it has to be revealed to us. And this is precisely what occurred when God came to this earth. In Jesus, and He lived among us. The opening words of the Gospel of John, I think, present probably the best picture for us, and helps us to understand the the divinity of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, and it gives us a a vision of how God designed for you and me to live with Him. In John chapter one, verse one and two, verse fourteen: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Circle that with. And the word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. Circle that. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling where? Among us, with us, okay, with us. It's, it's one of the enduring paradoxes of the Christian faith that Jesus, the word, existed before all things, and that he was both with God and he was God. And this, this doctrine or this, this, this uh, theology is referred to as the Trinity, one God eternally existing in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And I think that we see in that just beautiful example of this relationship that God desires with you and me. In fact, Kevin DeYoung made this statement. He says, with a biblical understanding of the Trinity, we can say that God Did not create in order to be loved, but rather created out of the overflow of the perfect love that had always existed among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who ever lived in perfect mutual relationship and delight. So we shouldn't be surprised that when God wanted to restore this relationship with you and me so that we could be with him, that he would come to this earth himself to dwell with us. He didn't send immutable principles. He didn't send a list of rules and regulations. He didn't send a genie in a bottle. He didn't send a to-do list. God himself came to be with us, to walk with us once again as he did in the Garden of Eden in the beginning. And, and so this is what I want you to write in, in your life notes. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Life with God is so different than all of the rest of the pastures that we've looked at. And here's why. Because its goal is not to use God. It's not to use God. Its goal is God. God is the goal. God ceases to become a device that we employ for our own benefit. Instead, God himself becomes the focus of our desire. And this is difficult for many people to comprehend because they have a less than complete and oftentimes flawed view of God. And so they therefore don't desire to be with him because they have misperceptions of what he's like. And they think, I don't want to be that close to God. Because they don't really understand what he's like. Consider, for example, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a story. In Mark chapter 5, there's a story of this guy who was demon possessed. And he was just out of control. And they tried tying, tying him up with ropes, and he broke the ropes. They tried chaining him, he broke the chains, and he was cutting himself, he was torturing himself day and night. They just couldn't control the guy. Absolutely out of control. Probably much like the person sitting next to you. And just kidding. Just kidding. That was horrible. That was absolutely horrible. And, and, and so he, Jesus comes along and he goes out to worship him and he says, would you have mercy on me? And so I'm going to pick up the story Mark chapter 5 and verse 14 through 18. I actually, just jump down the second line. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons. That's a bunch of demons, okay? And they were sitting there, and, and, and now he's dressed, and he's in his right mind. And what's it say? They were afraid, okay? Because they knew what he was like, and now he's sitting there. He's, in his, he's dressed. He's in his right mind. They see this, and they're just afraid, Those who had seen it, they told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told about the pigs as well, because Jesus cast the demons out of this guy, and they went into like 2,000 pigs that were there, swine. They ran over a cliff into the water and drowned. And so all this goes back to the townsfolk, and they hear about it. Then the people, they began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. And so as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed, he begged to go with him. Now, the different responses to Jesus in this story are very revealing. The townspeople, all they saw was the power of Jesus and what he did, and they were afraid of that kind of power. I mean, they're thinking, somebody who has that much power, what could he possibly do to us? I mean, he might come in and take over our village. He may enslave us. We have no idea what somebody could do with that kind of power, and they were afraid, we want you to get out of here because they had a misunderstanding. Notice the difference between the townspeople and the guy who was healed. The guy who was healed experienced more than just the power of Jesus. What did he experience? He experienced the mercy, and he experienced the kindness and the healing Of God, and so his relationship was totally different. To where, no, don't go away. Let me come with. If you're going to go, let me come with you because I want to be with you. So he begged him to. He he begged him to stay. And so this same pattern holds true today. This is what I want you to see. People today with an incomplete view of God, or or a tainted vision of what God is like, they either want to use him or they want to dismiss him altogether. But when you and I have a full and we have a clear and accurate vision of what God is like, then we'll not settle for anything less than being with him. And so then we have to ask ourselves a question, okay, what's God like? I'd love to sit down and just have that conversation with some of you. What's God like? And to hear the different perspectives that you have about God And so to answer that question, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. Why? John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me, they've seen the Father. Okay? In other places, Jesus said that he came to bear witness to God, to, to tell us what he was like. So what's Jesus like? Listen, I could preach a whole series on this. It'd be easy. But as I sat there and, and just thought about, it, just for a few moments, what, what's God like? These are the first things that came to my mind, okay? And this is, I guess, how I kind of relate to God is how I see him. But Jesus is trustworthy. I can trust him. Because remember, one of the views is he's a capricious God. We, can't, we don't know what he's going to do. And so we fear him. Hebrews thirteen eight says, Jesus Christ, read this with me. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. He doesn't change. He's trustworthy. Here's another one. Jesus is compassionate. I love this. Aren't you glad that Jesus is compassionate? When you follow Jesus through the pages of the New Testament, he had enormous compassion on people. And 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 compassion—it it's, it's, was—it was way more than just feeling sorry. Have you ever, you know, felt just felt sorry for somebody, but you didn't really do anything about it? And so that's kind of—it stops at feeling sorry. But Jesus had compassion. That's a much deeper word. In fact, the word that's used here is, is called splanchnizomai. Splanchnizomai, and that means nothing to you unless you're in the healthcare profession and study splanchnology. Does anybody here know what splanchnology is about? Okay, I'm not going to take time to find out if you it's it's um, it's a study of the gut. It's a study of the gut. And so what this means is when Jesus had compassion, what that means, and that's the word that's used, that he felt what that person was feeling, he had compassion and he felt it so deeply that he felt it in his gut. For example, in, in Matthew fourteen, fourteen, Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat and he looked at him and he had compassion. What it means is he 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 literally felt the limp of the leper. He felt that pain. He felt the he felt the loneliness of the woman at the well that that nobody would have anything to do with her because she just was sleeping with everybody. And so she was actually very lonely. And But Jesus felt that loneliness. Jesus felt the, he felt the pain of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, and they wanted to kill her and, and stone her. He, you know, he could sense, and he could feel the pain she was feeling. You see, Jesus could feel all of that. Jesus feels what you feel today. When the doctor tells you the cancer's back, or when your spouse walks out on you, or, or when your kids disobey you and they kind of go off the deep end, they, Jesus feels that. I mean, Jesus is so in tune with you and, and how you are and what you're dealing with that in Psalm chapter 56, verse 8, it says, this is what the psalmist says, You've stored my tears in your bottle and counted each of them. I mean, Dave, this is how he pictures it, that God has a bottle, has your name on it, and every time you cry over something, he keeps a record, he stores your tears in his bottle. I mean, nobody else knows you that well, right? And and so that's the compassion that God has for you. And so I'm glad God's compassionate because I need his compassion. Jesus is forgiving. Again, he caught the woman. The woman was caught in the act of adultery. They want to stone her and kill her. And Jesus bends down and starts riding in in the dirt. And then he comes to this conclusion in John chapter eight, verse 10. He stood up again and he said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And then Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And and he he was he had that kind of a forgiving heart, and so you wonder, could God forgive you? Does God forgive you? God will forgive you, not just the first time, but every time. Not just for the little sins, but for the big ones, all of them, repeatedly, over and over. And so He's forgiving. Jesus is unconditional love. That's the next one that came. He's unconditional love in Luke chapter 15. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, they were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the the tax collectors and sinners, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they were all muttering under their breath as they were so good at doing. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And Jesus was sending a very clear message that I accept the people you reject. I accept these people because I have an unconditional acceptance for people. And aren't you glad that, that God accepts you just the way you are? And so if you want to know what's God like so that I can be with him, that's just a glimpse of it. I could go on and go on and go on. So what does it mean to, to relate to God from this posture of simply being with him? Consider this. Consider a young man who recently acquires his driver's license. And he wants to start his newfound freedom out on the highway with a vintage Ford Mustang. Okay, well, you picked the car of your choice. And so for this, this young man to, to gain this vision of such a life, he has, to, he has to have this vision to where he treasures it more than anything else, okay? I, I, that's my treasure. I want that more than anything else. But then he's got to be united to that Mustang. Okay, it's not enough just to envision, it's got to be united to it. In other words, it's got to be like in his driveway. And that means somebody could give him one, you know, he could go buy one, he could go steal one, but he's got to have one okay, in his driveway. But it's not enough to envision it, and it's not enough just to have it sitting in the driveway. What else do you have to do? You have to drive it, you have to experience it. You have to get that thing out on the road and see what it'll do, and you you experience it. Okay, I know this is kind of a, a crude, simple analogy, but I think it helps us to understand our life with God. Okay, so I want you to write this down. Once we come to treasure God, once we come to treasure God and not merely use Him, we must unite with God and learn how to experience Him. Life with God entails all three of these. The value of the kingdom of heaven, which Jesus oftentimes equated with his own presence, was spoken of in similar terms. Listen to this in Matthew 13. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, he hid it again and he sold everything he owned to, uh, to get enough money to go buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. And when he discovers a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. You see, this is the essence of what we've been talking about in this entire series. God ceases to become how we get our treasure and he becomes our treasure. That's the essence of of Christianity life with God first means treasuring him above everything else but that alone is not enough it doesn't answer the question What does life with God look like and and so a vision of God that causes us to treasure him has to move on to the next thing and that next component is uniting with God the the Bible doesn't speak about us possessing God like we would possess an item like a Mustang okay you can't buy God The Bible speaks of us being united with him in relational terms. The Bible uses phrases like um, being reconciled with or united to him. Those are relational terms that show the divine human relationship. But there's something that separates us from God. Does anybody know what that is? It's sin, it's sin. Okay, so thankfully Jesus came not merely to be a beautiful representation of what God is like, so we could ooh and awe ah him, you know, treasure him, but he also came to reconcile us so we could be united with him, okay? That's Second Corinthians 5.18 says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's why the cross is central to our faith. In Second Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. You see, Jesus endured separation from his Father and the Holy Spirit in order to come to this earth and die on the cross for us so that we could be with God. He came himself. Now, for a lot of you, you're really familiar with all that I'm talking about right now. And this whole stuff about being united with, with God and all that stuff, it's pretty familiar to you. But in many churches and in many circles, the idea of being united with God and treasuring God is divorced from the notion of, of actually being with him. And what I mean by that is, is this. A lot of people come to faith in Jesus not because it's God they desire. It's because they want um, a ticket to heaven, or a pass out of hell. And they really don't desire God. And when, when either of those is the case, that's when you start relating to God inappropriately and you think, God exists for me, as opposed to, I just want to be with him. And so, what we've seen is that life with God, it starts with treasuring him and then being united with him because of Jesus. And and then it moves to this experiencing God. And and what happens with us is we think, there's no way I could experience a relationship with God on this earth. And we think we have to wait until we get to heaven. But that's that's not the case. You don't have to wait until your body is at room temperature before you can experience God. That's not what the Bible teaches. You can experience yeah, you're gonna experience Him more fully when you're ushered into eternity, but you can experience him and be with him right now. And, and Paul shows us this. Paul talked about, I want to know Christ. And remember, we talked about this. And that word know, is not an intellectual knowledge, but it's an experiential, intimate relationship with him. Let's go back to the Mustang analogy for just a second. In, in, in Christ, we not only have been united with our treasure, but we've been handed the keys, and we've been invited to take it for a drive. But sadly, some people, they never get that far. And the notion of having a personal relationship with God, it's, it's, it may be familiar language, but to so many people, it means nothing more than just having a five-minute devotional devotion in the morning and asking God to help you with your struggles and then kind of going on with your day. Fortunately for you and me, Jesus modeled what experiencing a relationship with God is like, okay? Jesus. You know, Jesus oftentimes sought times of solitude and to be alone with God. And in fact, he prayed to God a lot, so much so. And it so intrigued his disciples that they said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray too? And so Jesus prayed and had those moments of solitude. But Jesus did not just experience the Father being with the Father when he was praying. He experienced him throughout the day. When he was healing, when he was touching people, when he was serving people, teaching, and all of this stuff. I mean, Jesus spoke of his absolute dependence upon God. In in John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, the Son of Man, Jesus, I can do nothing by myself. He, He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. And so, while Jesus prayed audibly in public and in private, this didn't encompass the fullness of his relationship with God and his relationship. When you investigate the scripture and you follow Jesus, he was in constant communion and communication with God. If There was a constant awareness of his presence. Uh, this is what Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians five seventeen, where he says, pray without ceasing. How do you do that? How do you do that? Let me read something to you from Thomas Kelly. He's an author and and teacher, and he wrote about uh, the the kind of life that, that really it exists on two different planes. And listen to what he says. This is from A Testament of Devotion. He says, There is a way of ordering our mental life on more than just one level at a time. I mean, you you know that, because some of you right now, you're listening to me talk, but you're also thinking about the football game this afternoon, right? And where you're gonna eat, so you can order your life on two levels at one time. One level may be thinking, discussing, seeing, and meeting the demands of all of the external affairs of life. But deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration with a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. The secular world of of today values and cultivates only the first level, believing this is where the real business of life is, is done. But we know that the deep level of prayer is the most important thing in the world. It is at this deep level that the real business of life is determined. You see, this described how Jesus lived his life. And, and while he was walking about touching and, and, and healing people, he was experiencing his father on a deeper level. You can do the same thing. And in fact, this morning, I was thinking as I was shaving, I was shaving my head and with my head blade and stuff. And while I'm shaving, I caught myself, I was praying about today and about the message and, and stuff like that. And it was without really being intentional about it, I was beginning to experience the life on both levels because I had to get my head looking good you know, for today. <laughs> But I also had to get my heart right. And and so I was praying for me and, and for you. And so let me let me just very quickly I'm gonna roll through this really fast and wrap this thing up. Let me give you hopefully a fresh look at some old proven methods of what it means to to live life with God, okay? I'm going to talk about praying with the scriptures and then praying with the Holy Spirit, okay? And and think about praying the scriptures as how you kind of start out your day, okay? Because remember, uh, many times people today look at the Bible as a textbook and a manual, something to be studied and discussed and then to live its principles. Try to look at the Bible as the life-giving word of God that's given to us And it's actually how God has revealed uh, himself to us, okay? It's a self-revelation of God to us. So I'm gonna give you five words that I want you to think about and, and begin to implement in your daily practice in the morning. First one's reading, okay, reading. And what I mean by that is softly reading a passage of Scripture and being very mindful of every word and every phrase that you read. Okay, what this means is you're not going to read a long passage of Scripture. Some of you think, I'm going to read the Bible through this year. And that's okay, that's good. But what happens is you're just speed reading through the whole thing. And you're just trying to get it done, get it knocked out and all that stuff. I'm talking about, and again, nothing wrong with that, but but a shorter passage of Scripture and, and engage in it reflectively Awareness of God's presence right there with you. Okay, this may mean reading that little phrase or that little passage over and over again and then eventually identifying a word or a phrase, okay, identifying that that speaks to you in some manner. Here's number two, meditating. Having read the scripture in in the second step, now you allow the scripture to speak to you, okay? You allow it to read you. And you use the passage to guide your time of reflection and self-examination, okay? And you might even ask yourself a question like this. How does the reading, how does this phrase, how does this word apply to my situation today? And again, you're becoming more and more aware of God's presence because you're inviting God to speak to you and reveal his desire at this part. And then speaking is the next word, speaking. After allowing God and his scripture to have the first word, Now it's time for you to respond. And you communicate your thoughts to God uh, with words, audibly, okay? And these may be words of gratitude. These could be words of confession. They could be words of worry and anxiety, of fear, any number of emotions, okay, that that are beginning to emerge from this word or this phrase. And then the next word is contemplating. When your speaking ceases, and it's time, now it's time to rest in God's presence and to use the remainder of the time that you're allowing at this point just to be silent and open to what God has to say. And you're becoming so aware of his presence. And, you, and at this point, you receive whatever it is God has for you. You receive his forgiveness. You receive his mercy. You, you receive his assurance. You receive his love, whatever it is he has for you. And then the last word is remunerating, uh, renew, ruminating, ruminating. <laughs> ruminating as, as you uh, as you conclude your time you take this special word or this phrase with you throughout the day and and you just keep returning to it and every time you return to it you let it prompt you to pray and to be reminded that God is there with you now I encourage you to do that in the morning in the evening as you begin to wrap up your bookend in your day, in the evening, pray with the Holy Spirit, because in our busy, uh, information um, overload lives that we have in the culture, it's it's increasingly difficult to stop long enough to to really invite God's presence into our life as you close out your day and as you go to bed. And, and so I want two filters that you can use to examine your day. Let me give you two words. The first word is consolation. Consolation. This is when you, you're drawing closer to God. Consolation. You're moving closer to God. The other word is desolation. These are times that you are moving away from God. Okay? So in times of consolation... You're going to ask yourself, you're ready to go to bed? You're kind of thinking, you're reflecting in time of consolation. Ask yourself this question. When today did I, most, did I feel most touched by God's presence? When today did I feel most touched by God's presence? And you're reflecting back through the day and you're thinking, when did I sense and feel God's presence today? There's other questions, I, but you can figure some out, okay? Here's desolation. Here's another, here's a question. When today... That I sense being drawn away from God? You'll know when you were drawn away from God. Now, the reason for examining yourself, it's not to think about what you could have done, what you should have done, or what you ought to have done. It's rather, this is a time just to be honest with yourself with the help of the Holy Spirit before God. And, and what's going to happen as you begin to bring your day to a close, it's going to prompt you to do some things. It may prompt you to confess sin, or it may uh, prompt you to move into a sense of overwhelming joy and thanksgiving. But you're, you're recognizing God with you every day. You see, this is what, this is what happens. With the more that you live in the realization that God is with you every single moment, this is what you can expect. A life of faith and not control. A life of hope and not despair. A life of love and not fear. Let me close out with the, the story. In 1982, the Today Show scheduled an interview with Billy Graham. And when he arrived at the studio, one of the program's producers informed Graham's assistant that they had a room set aside for Dr. Graham to come and to pray before he would go on, on TV. And so the assistant thanked the producer uh, for the gesture, but he told, he told him that Mr. Graham would not need the room. And the producer was a bit shocked that this world-famous Christian leader would not want to pray before going on national TV. And so this is what Graham's assistant said. Mr. Graham started praying when he got up this morning. He prayed while eating breakfast. He prayed on the way over in the car, and he'll probably be praying all the way through the interview. What did Billy Graham understand? He understood this. He understood that life with God was not something that you put on hold until you die. It was something to be enjoyed in the present through constant communion with God. Living life on the visible level with all of the activities and responsibilities, but living life on a much deeper level in constant communion and constant fellowship with God. You see, what I'm saying is, it's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. We make it complicated. You make the choice. God, I'm I'm going to acknowledge today and every moment you are with me. And you take time to pray the scriptures and you take time to pray with the Holy Spirit. And you'll grow in increasing awareness of God being with you. You'll stop living in fear. You'll stop having to control. You'll stop living in anxiety because God is with you. I'm going to ask you if you'd bow your head. And as we close out today, some of you just need to pray, God, would you just help me to understand this? Would you help me, Lord, to understand what it means to live with you and quit trying to control you and quit just wanting stuff from You, but You, Lord, that You become my treasure. Nothing else, just You, Lord, become my treasure. And to learn to live life with You and to know that everything else will be taken care of. Some of you here today, you've never given your heart to Jesus. You've never surrendered. You've never bowed your knee before Jesus and said, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I need You. I want You to be my Savior and Lord. If that's you today, would you... And that's your desire. Would you pray with me this prayer? I'm going to ask you to pray it aloud, to repeat this after me. And if you've made the decision to follow Jesus, would you also join in? Father in heaven, today I thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth and dying on the cross for me so I could spend eternity with the Father, with the Father. Today I humble myself before you. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sin and to be my Lord and Savior. I choose to follow you. I pray this in your name. Amen.